Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Welcome. Bienvenido. Bienvenida. It's good to be here. Welcome to everybody watching online. I want to take a moment today and do something a little different. I'm going to have you stand back up. We're going to pray for a couple, three very important people. We're all very important people to the Lord, but these are three situations that are like life-threatening situations, and I want to agree together. There's uh, Katie, who is in a hospital. She's been in Santa Rosa Memorial for over a month, mostly in ICU with an infection. There's little Naomi, who last Sunday nearly drowned to death and was resuscitated after 15 minutes, who's in Kaiser ICU for pediatrics over in Oakland. And there's Eloisa, who's in Brazil, who's going through cancer treatment. I want you all to turn to the camera in the back. Stretch your hands toward it. Wave to us if you're on the camera one there. There it is. Okay. I want you guys all to stretch your hands towards the camera. We're going to pray for just a couple of moments, and I want you to agree with me. Let your faith get activated. I believe the Lord wants to bring full restoration. So, Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, we pray for Katie at Santa Rosa. Lord, we pray for the power of your anointing to break the back of the infection in her body, and Lord, you would release complete healing in her today. Lord, we lift up Naomi, who has gone through this near-drowning experience, and we pray for little eight-year-old Naomi, God, that you would raise her up with total and complete healing and restoration for your glory, God. We pray for Eloisa in Brazil today. Father, we ask that every cell of cancer in her body, Lord, you put death to death. Put this cancer to death, we pray, in Jesus' name. God, we just speak to every cell that it would be gone. And Lord, we pray for every cell in her body that should be there. Lord, it would be restored. Lord, we just pray for these three young ladies today that by your Spirit, you would touch them because by your stripes, we are healed. And everybody that agrees, I want you to shout a huge amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Thank you for doing that. Please remember them in prayer. I believe that all three of those are going to be an amazing testimony to the glory of the Lord. And um, today I want to do something a little bit different. Um, we're in this new series called Seasons, and I introduced it last week. And um, today we're going to be taking a look at what I believe will give us like a prophetic lens to be able to see the moment that we're living in, the, the moment of history we're in now. And of course, last week we looked at uh, the sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles 12, 32. And it says about them that they knew, they had understanding of the times. And because of that, they knew what Israel ought to do. When we know the time that we're in, we can discover our purpose. So it's like if we recognize the season, we can discover our purpose. And the Lord wants to make us like the sons of Issachar, knowing the time. So we understand what to do. Sometimes we can lose track of time. I don't know if that's ever happened to you, but like maybe something, something really good is happening and you lose track of time. Um, sometimes that's a good thing, like on a long drive or a long flight, all of a sudden you're there because the conversation was so good. Time passes really fast. Other times we lose track of time because we're distracted by something and we kind of miss a moment. Uh, maybe you've ever been driving like missed your exit and like it turned into a whole extra add-on to your trip and you got lost, that kind of thing. But we can lose track of time or track of where we are. And the Lord wants us to be aware of where we are so that we like have our spiritual GPS coordinates. We know you are here on this, at this point in history and we're, we're ready to partner with what God is doing in this day that we live in. In Ephesians 5 verse 15 and 16, we looked at this last week as well. It says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Hallelujah. Amen. We don't want to be foolish. The proverb says a lot about fools over and over and over again. I don't want to be one of them. I don't want you to be one of them. I want to be wise. Come on, say amen. amen. And the wise make the most of every kairos moment, every opportunity, knowing the days are, are tough days, they're evil days. Now, what I'm hoping we can start to understand today is something that Esther came to understand in the story of, in, in the story of what happened in her time and there was this question that her uncle Mordecai asked her. And it's kind of a picture, I believe, of the Holy Spirit coming alongside the church and asking us a similar question. And the question was this, and here's the context. Basically, there was a really evil plot against all of the Jewish people that were in the, in the land of Persia. And at that moment, um, she had been made queen. She would found incredible favor. 
but you weren't supposed to go in before the king uninvited. And she was contemplating whether to do that. If, if you I mean, the king could like actually, it was not a very egalitarian, very nice situation. The king could actually order her put to death, even though she was the queen. I know, very, it was not the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom of Persia, okay? But it was a, it was a life-risking situation for her to go in uninvited. But Mordecai asked her this question. Let's put it up there on the screen. Ephesians 4, 14. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, that word time is the word we looked at last week, an appointed time. And of course, for us, it's not like a who knows. We know that God has put us in this generation, for this moment, for this time. When God contemplated your life and when you would be born and when you'd be alive, He placed you in this generation and He placed the gifts in you and the grace on you to succeed with Him and to make a difference for His kingdom in this generation. You were born for such a time as this. You were made for this moment. Tell somebody, you're made for this moment. Come on. All right. It's exciting. We live in an incredible moment, you know, um, on God's timeline. And, you know, I, I believe there's a new season coming for, for our house, for the body of Christ in our region, in our nation. Um, I believe there's personal new seasons that God has us, uh, has for individuals. You know, there's different seasons of the soul. But I want to actually zoom out from some of that today and get a, a bigger picture. Sometimes we're too close in to really see. Have you ever seen some of those super um, high megapixel, high resolution pictures really close up of like a beehive or a piece of pollen. It looks like an alien planet or something. Then you zoom out and realize you're looking at a tiny speck that was on a flower. And sometimes, you know, like something's too close to be able to see it. Like I can't read this right in front of my face. And I actually, I used to be able to read it like right there. And now it's kind of, <laughs> and I'll have some reading glasses in a couple years. And, um, you kind of have to have a little further way to get perspective. And it really is like that sometimes with, we're, we're, we're too close to see it. We need to zoom out for a moment and then we can kind of get our, get our bearings and zoom back in. So are you guys willing to do that with me this morning? Can we go on that journey together? I'd like to take you on that journey this morning. Um, you know, I, I think about the prophets that saw this day that we're in, like Daniel. He prophesied in Daniel 12, many will go to and fro. And knowledge will increase. And I, I believe he was seeing the internet age where knowledge is doubling or every year. I believe he was seeing the, the, seeing the age of air travel where people are going to and fro, where you can be anywhere in the world in less than 24 hours, pretty much, unless it's like in Antarctica or whatever. But you can be around the world in, in, in 24 hours. It's amazing. We have satellites surrounding the globe today with communications going internationally and even even outside of this globe, into space, at the speed of light. He was seeing people going to and fro, knowledge going to and fro, the age of the internet, the day that we're living in, prophesying about it, and people are like, what are you even talking about? But he saw it. Prophets looked towards our day, anticipating a move of God that covered the earth, the glory of the Lord covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. They looked into it and they were like, that is an amazing moment. And friends, you and I live in this moment. All right. So what I want to do today is talk to you about the feasts of the Lord. I'm going to try to not make everybody hungry like I did last week. I was talking about Indian food and I was talking about all kinds of kinds of stuff like that. The feasts of the Lord. And I'm really grateful to one of my spiritual fathers, Pastor Roger Houtsma, the pastor of this church for 26 years, who has gone home to be with the Lord now. But he had such excellent teaching and preaching and ministry around this theme of the feasts of the Lord um, from the Old Testament and as they carried into the New Testament. You know, even Jesus, he, he observed the feasts that God gave to Israel. You see that happening throughout the Gospels. And even Paul, there's a moment where he wanted to get back to Jerusalem and he passed quickly through Ephesus so he could keep the Feast of Pentecost. There was awareness of the feasts even in New Testament times. And they speak to us the, some very big picture truths. You know, Pastor Roger even wrote a book called Understanding the Feasts of the Lord. I don't know if it's in the book uh, shelf out there or not, but um, we might be able to track some of those down. 
But we're going to take some time to review this today. And for some of you, it might be a refresher. For others of you, it might be brand new information. But I think for all of us, it's going to bring us to a fresh awareness of where we are in this moment in history as we get ready to go into a new season with the Lord. And we can know the times and then understand what Israel and what we ought to do. Can you say amen? amen. Okay, so let's zoom out a little bit this morning. I, uh, I want to first mention that there are three main feast periods in the Old Testament. There's others oh, like Hanukkah and Purim, but these are the three main feasts. And they're called Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And on the inside of your notes this morning, there's, it's a little bit different. It's not fill-ins, it's a chart. And on this chart, it really shows different kinds of applications, different layers of application for these feast periods. And you're going to see that these three main periods actually include seven feasts. Underneath Passover, there's, um, there's both this Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Pentecost is a standalone. And then under tabernacles, we have trumpets, day of atonement, and booths, or, or tabernacles, or harvest. So we're going to take a look at that. But turn with me this morning to Exodus chapter 23. You have your Bible, turn to Exodus 23. I still believe in bringing your Bible to church. You know what I'm saying? There's nothing like the sound of like pages turning in the Bible, you know? If you have it on your device, that's okay too. You can turn there. Okay. Um, or look on the screen. But Exodus 23, here's what we're going to read. Three times a year you shall keep a feast to me, or three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread, also known as Passover. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. So that moment where God established unleavened bread and Passover was the moment they came out of Egypt. So there was a historical moment that God worked in Israel where these feasts were rooted and established. Okay, the next verse says, And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the land, and the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field, three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God. Okay, let's go over to the Deuteronomy passage now as well. And Deuteronomy chapter 16 and verse 16 reads like this. It says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses. And the feast of unleavened bread at the feast of weeks and at the feast of tabernacles, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. And I'm going to read to you... Um, uh, verse 17 as well. Every man shall give as he is able according to the blessing of the Lord your God which he has given you. Now we know that verse because we hear it around giving teaching sometimes. But this is actually connected to this bigger picture of the feasts. And uh, the message says it like this. All of your men must appear before God, your God, three times each year at the place he designates. It calls it the feast of unraised bread or Passover at the feast of weeks and at the feast of booths. No one is to show up in the presence of God empty-handed. Each man must bring as much as he can manage, giving generously in response to the blessings of God, your God. Okay, so three times a year, they were to go up and keep this feast. And in Hebraic life, these were times of special set-aside times, set-apart times of worship, times of encountering God. And basically, all of their life was oriented and, and centered around these feast periods, the rhythm of these feasts. Now, I want you to notice that, did you notice that the male, is this the males that were required to go? Like the men had to go? I want to point out a couple of things about that. First of all, we need to understand the women and children were welcome, but going to the feast was not the equivalent of going to the synagogue. They weren't going to the synagogue for a special service. When it says they were going to go up to the place God chose, who knows what place that is? What, what is it? Temple. Where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem was on top of Mount Moriah. That is up over 3,000 feet. And if you lived in other places in Israel, like if you lived in the Galilee, the Galilee is actually below sea level. 
and you would have to travel 100 miles on foot or on horse or on a mule or whatever, all the way through rocky, deserty land, all the way up through the mountains into Jerusalem. And let me tell you, that is not an easy thing to do. Some of us have meltdowns trying to take our five kids under three to school in the morning. Talk about how, how would you try to take your whole family all the way up to a feast three times a year. God said, hey, men, you've at least got to come. Everybody else, I'm going to give you, it's not a requirement, but would love to have you. You guys tracking with me? I also wondered about this though. Maybe it's because men needed that time of recalibration more. This is like the equivalent not of going to church, a church gathering or a synagogue, but going to a special conference. And I feel like men have a little bit of an independent streak in us. Like, I want to get it done. I can do it myself. You know, we, we might tend towards our own strength a little bit when God is calling us to live in dependency on Him and not on our own strength. And I feel like there's something really powerful here that God required these men to come up and have this encounter with Him, this time of worship where they would get, their hearts would get reset and recalibrated. And it speaks something to us. Because men... They have a, men carry a certain amount of influence and it's, it's not, it's, I'm not trying to say that we're not even talking about any of this kind of thing. Men or women are great or anything like that. But God has put an influence on men. When men seek the Lord with their whole heart, it has a powerful effect on the family. It has a powerful effect on society. So God knew what he was doing when he's saying, I want everybody to come up. Men, you definitely got to make it happen. Come on, somebody. Come on, men. Oh, let's get an amen from all the men. One, two, three. Yeah. I miss that at men's retreats, like the sound of men all worshiping. I also like the sound of women all worshiping. I like it all. So um, men had to trust God in that moment that he would protect and cover and watch over that he would make up the difference for when they weren't working in their field and, and taking care of their flocks. Think about it. This journey could be 150 miles plus for certain places that you, you would have lived to go up to worship. And there could be other nations. We all know that Israel even today is not like, it's, it's not in a very friendly neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? It's a rough hood. Yeah. It was a rough hood back then too. It's a land bridge. Every time somebody wants to have a war, they cross that land bridge between Africa and Asia and Europe, and there's always people coming through there. It wasn't always an easy decision to go up, but they had to trust God in that moment. So I want to show you two things that would happen during these three, day, uh, these three feasts. A, these feasts would be a time of like recalibration. It'd be a time of seeking first the kingdom of God, where they returned to living a life of faith, trust, and dependency on God. I think about that in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, where it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. There's a place where we surrender to God, and we're not leaning on our own understanding, our own strength, and in that moment, as we know Him, as we meet with Him in that way, He directs our paths. He leads us. He provides for us. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else you need is going to be added to you. So as they stepped into trust, as they stepped out to travel and go worship at this feast, they were trusting for God to provide for them as they sought first the kingdom. The second thing that would happen during these feasts is that it would, be a, it would help Israel preserve and grow in a presence-centered culture even after they moved into the promised land, the land of Canaan, where they were spread out into 12 tribes, 12 different possessions. And what that looked like, um, the, reason, the reason this gathering together would be powerful is because when they were in the wilderness, they were in this time of intimacy as a people. They were in this time of community. Think about it. The tabernacle was built, the tabernacle of Moses. The cloud by day and the fire by night hovered over that tabernacle. Everybody was camped around the tabernacle, all 12 tribes. In fact, if you look at the population of the tribes and how it was laid out, it very well could have looked like a cross. I believe that when Balaam stood up on that high mountain to curse the people of God, he looked down and said, how can I bless what God is, how can I curse what God has blessed? And he saw the people of God laid out in the shape of a cross, camped around the presence of God. 
Everybody could see his presence. But when they went across the Jordan into the promised land, they began to split up, go out, possess their inheritance. They were hundreds of miles apart. They no longer were camped around the presence of God together, except three times a year, they would all leave their tribes, leave their inheritance, leave their farms, leave their flocks, and come up to the place that God chose, come together in unity, and come into his presence and get recalibrated. And, and, and they would increase again and grow in that culture that we are a nation that is centered around the presence of God. We don't just have some religion. We don't just have some tradition. The living God brought us up out of Egypt into relationship with him, and we're going to continue to grow in that connection with him. Could somebody say amen? So that's what would happen at these feasts. We know Emmanuel means God with us, but discipleship really means us with God. It's my decision to pursue him, my decision to, to be a, a presence person, a presence church that is going after his word, that's seeking his face, that's seeking him in prayer, that's pursuing him in community with his family. It's interesting because every time in Israel's history that they had a king that carried a heart for God's presence, the whole nation prospered. Every time. Every time one of their kings sought the Lord. Every time one of their kings returned to this DNA of being a presence-centered nation, blessing fell on the country. Every time somebody slipped into idolatry or slipped a couple little things in on the side, bad times came. Wasn't, wasn't who they were called to be. They weren't supposed to be like any other nation. They weren't supposed to copy any, any other culture. They had a unique and beautiful culture centered around the presence of God. So if we understand these feast periods, it creates a massive context for understanding not only the scripture, but also the times and seasons we're living in. Let me um, summarize them again, group them together again. First of all, we have the feast of Passover or in Hebrew, Pesach. And that's the feast of also known as unleavened bread. It happened this year already. And next year, it's going to be April 9 to 16. Okay. That includes Passover, first fruits, and unleavened bread. Second of all, we have the Feast of Harvest, or Shavuot, or weeks, or Pentecost. That's 50 days after Passover. That's initially celebrated when they came out of Egypt into the Sinai, and God met them and gave them the Ten Commandments, two tablets on the top of, uh, to Moses on the top of Sinai, and he brought those tablets down. Feast of, of uh, Pentecost. And finally, the Feast of Tabernacles, which we're almost in. Two weeks from now, we're going to see, we're going to have the Feast of Tabernacles and ingathering beginning. It's a 21-day period. It begins with the Feast of Trumpets or Rosh Hashanah. Anybody heard the phrase Rosh Hashanah before? We live in a very Jewish area, so hopefully you've heard some of these. They're, they're not new to you. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is the Feast of Trumpets. I've seen a lot of people around our church lately with some trumpets. I'm digging it. It's a, I believe like it's a, it's a prophetic reminder for us that God is calling and he's gathering. And we'll talk a little bit about this uh, today and probably more in future days. Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. That's going to be October 9th this year. And then the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, the Feast of Booths. That's where when they were in the promised land, like on their property, they would build like shelters and, 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 and like tabernacle, like they build like outdoors kind of shelters to remember when all they had was the presence of God, manna, the tabernacle, and they were in the wilderness together, remembering their time of dwelling with God in that wilderness season. That was what it commemorated. Okay, so there's a past or memorial element to these feasts that are literal and uh, historical. There's prophetic fulfillment of these feasts. There's personal application for these feasts. And there's a seasonal truth that each one of these feasts points towards. And that's what I want to do as we look at the inside of this chart today. It's really interesting because I think once you learn about these feasts a little bit and you go back and read scripture, you're going to begin to see them pop up all over the place. For example, you know, when you think about the feast of Passover, Jesus was crucified on the eve of Passover. He was buried in unleavened bread, and he rose in first fruits. And then he said, go and wait in Jerusalem 
How long did they wait in Jerusalem? They waited in Jerusalem until the day of Pentecost was fully come. And on the day of Pentecost, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on his disciples in Jerusalem. Not a day before. If we want to really understand some of the timing of God and the seasons of God, we need to step back and realize God waited literally for the day of Pentecost to pour out His Spirit. There's something about His calendar, His feast, His timetable that we need to get dialed into as a people. It's incredible to me to really think about that. That's why Spirit-filled believers are called Pentecostals. Because it happened on the day of Pentecost. That's it. You know, next time you hear the word Pentecostal, now you know. You're like, that's what that's about. We were in the Dominican Republic. It was so funny. Um, our, some of the kids on our team were buying some souvenirs. And this guy, it was a nice guy who was, spoke English. He was there, had a conversation with one of these vendors. And he's like, well, what kind of church are you? Are you like Baptist or what, what is it? And the kids didn't really know how to answer and they're like, well, we're, we're like Pentecostals. And he starts like dancing. He's like, his, his idea of Pentecostals is like, they're a really excited church. They like to dance a lot. They like to really get into it. That's good too. But listen, Pentecostals, what it really means is that you are a spirit-filled person. And you're expecting, when Jesus poured out his spirit um, on those disciples, they were filled with boldness to preach the gospel. Okay, I, I just want to show you here that there are... There's a past and a memorial fulfillment, if you just track with, the, with this inside uh, chart for a moment, but there's this prophetic fulfillment. And we've got all the way through already, we've gone through um, under prophetic to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which we know it, it happened with, on the same day as the giving of the Ten Commandments. What's really incredibly prophetic about the generation that we live in now, in this moment, is that we're in a time where Israel has become a nation again. And I'm going to come around to that in a moment. If you go over to the personal application part of this, what we see on this personal application is that each one of these feasts represents a, a spiritual truth, a step, a phase that we go through and grow through in our walk with the Lord as well. There's a personal journey that's here. Of course, Passover, we know for us that represents salvation. Think about this. Passover is first instituted when the blood of a lamb was shed, put on the doorposts of the house, and death passed over those homes. We, when we believe on Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, whose blood was shed for every person on planet earth, when we put our faith in Him, we pass from death to life, from darkness into salvation, and we're born again. It's Passover. But you know what? They didn't just, they didn't just experience Passover. That was all in the context of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread, in this context, the leaven represents sin and getting sin out of the house. I want to tell all of us, remind all of us of something very powerful today. Jesus didn't just die to forgive your sin, but he died to set you free from sin and set me free from sin so I can now live in his righteousness. I'm not just getting saved, but I'm getting the freedom to step out of sin. And that's what unleavened bread is. It's like being dunked in the waters of baptism and being raised up in the newness of life, set free from sin's power. I still can sin, but it's not, my, it's not really who I am anymore. I'm a new creation in Christ. I, my mind is being renewed. I'm learning new habits. And really, my spirit, the, the, who, I, who I am, the essence of who I am as a new creation really doesn't want to do that anymore. Sin is not the rule anymore. Now it's the exception. I'm called to live in newness of life. That's such good news. People think sometimes... What I just want to say is like we sing this in Amazing Grace, I once was. What I'm trying to tell you today is the cross creates a past tense in your life. And it creates a new present tense and a new future for you. There is I was. I once was blind, but now I see. There's a was and a now. I once was lost, but now I'm found. There is a B.C. 
And there is an AD, which stands for in Latin, the year of our Lord. I don't know. It might be, you might be in your spiritual life, the year of our Lord, six months. I don't know. It might be the year of our Lord, the 40 in your life, however long you've been a Christian. But what I'm telling you is that when we come to Christ, there is a marker on our life. It's the cross of Jesus. It's the tree of life that splits the difference between the past and the present and the future. There is a new you. <laughs> this is the power of the gospel. And it's pictured as they, the blood was applied to the doorposts. And they went out, how? Through the Red Sea. And when they went through the Red Sea, those waters w washed over all the Egyptians that were coming to just wipe them out. The power of Egypt was broken. Hello, somebody. And then 50 days later, Israel was at Sinai the church was in the upper room. And for us, we receive this gift, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. In tabernacles, the personal application is this call to sanctification. When those trumpets blow. Anybody want to blow one of the trumpets real quick? Johnny, you guys want to blow? Zach, you guys want to stand up and blow real quick? Let's hear a trumpet. I want to hear it. Awesome. Okay. Anybody else have one lingering around? Sometimes they come fully strapped, like there's like 10 trumpets in here. Okay. No, it's okay. We're, we're good for now, but we'll, we'll, we'll do a full on, we'll do a full send trumpet day one day, uh, shofar day. Okay. So when those trumpets would sound, what that meant for the people of Israel is that the cloud was lifting off of the tabernacle. God was getting ready to move them on. It also was a call out of their camps into one. It was a call to prepare for war. It's for us, it's, we know that warfare is spiritual. It's not against flesh and blood. And it was a call to go on to keep the rest of the feast, to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. So in Rosh Hashanah, those trumpets blow and it's a call. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, is coming and the Feast of Ingathering is coming. It's a call onward from Pentecost. We don't leave Pentecost. We still walk in the power of Pentecost, but it's a call onward in the life of the believer to keep the feast, to let God continue to build in our lives. And I think that's really important because whenever somebody experienced renewal in the history of the church, I mean, they get to seasons... Um, I'm just going to jump into seasons right now. There's been the seasonal application here, the last column on the right. All the truths that are in each one of these things we've seen since 1517, we've seen waves of restoration of truth in the church. And those waves, as they've been fulfilled, have gotten closer and closer together in fulfillment. It started with Martin Luther, 1517, the Reformation, 95 theses, nailed to the do church door of Wittenberg. And basically the revelation that he had, and by the way, Martin Luther did not have everything right. He had a lot of things wrong, but one thing he really got right was that the just are saved by faith. We are saved by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. By the way, the Catholics have now adopted that position. That seems so controversial back then. It is now the official statement of faith that we're saved through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice of the Catholic Church. I'm telling you, God's moving to bring the church back to the unity of the faith. He really is. He really is. That's another story. Everything I'm going to give you off of this chart, like when we get to the bottom of this right-hand column and there's seven different things God is going to do in the Feast of Tabernacles, all of those have their own unique passages and teaching along with them that I, I hope to do sometime with us as a church because it's the season that God is taking the church into. But today we're just doing the big, we're doing the big overview. After Martin Luther came the Anabaptists. And if I skip any of over your, your favorite like heroes of church history, I'm sorry. I have a lot of favorite heroes too that I'm, I'm skipping over in this process. Um, but the Anabaptists got this revelation that we aren't just saved by faith. We need to get water baptized and be identified with the death and burial of Jesus and like walk in newness of life. And here was, here's what's funny. Every time somebody got something, every, like when Martin Luther understood, like, hey, the just are saved by faith. There were a lot of people in the church at the time, they're like, what are you talking about? Think about this. 
This is the time of the printing press. People didn't even have printed Bibles. You have more Bibles in your house than they, you, than they had like in the whole European country. You have more Bibles on your phone than they had anywhere in 1516. But 1517, the printing press comes. People begin to read. Literacy rates start to go up. People can have the written word of God. It's like the most beautiful treasure in all of, to be possibly known. And people start digging into it and realizing, hey, we've kind of drifted from the truth of the gospel. Let's get it back. But every time someone discovers something new, everybody, the Bible says this, when new wine comes, everybody's going to say the old is better. In other words, nobody really likes change at first. Jesus taught that. But what's true is this. That water baptism was something God wanted us to have. It's funny because each time a new truth gets rediscovered, people that aren't ready for that kind of persecute the new truth people. And they kind of started their own denominations out of that. They start their own movements out of that. And after the Baptists came like Wesleyans and Methodists, this holiness movement, which really is um, on this right-hand column, that's really about discovering, wow, we're not just saved. We don't just get water baptized. What we actually get in our lives is this call to live this out to, into personal sanctification. Like I'm set apart to God. Like I'm, I'm living freed from sin. Paul told the church, hey, let's go on to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread, you guys. It's good that you're saved. It's good that you're baptized. It's time to keep the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Let's get the, the leaven out. You guys following me? That's like the end of the 19th century. Then this stirring happens. People are like, what's this Pentecost stuff? What's this Holy Spirit stuff? I think we need that too. And in 1905, in Wales... And in 1906, here in California, also out in Topeka, in Kansas, and different places around the country, but these, the hot spots where it really took root were like Wales and Southern California. Yeah, I, I, can't, I'm not, I can't say it enough. California. God recaptures the truth in His church of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, where people can be filled with the Holy Spirit, they can, they can have boldness, they can have a prayer language, they can see signs and wonders happen, they can go into all the world with authority and power and preach the gospel. Jesus said, well, you'll receive power to be witnesses. And people did that, and they scattered to the nations of the world. And out of that revival, missiologists and scholars today say, over 700 million people have come into the kingdom as a direct result of what happened at a little street in Southern California, in L.A., called Azusa Street. In California. Did I say California? You know, there's a reason there's so much craziness in this state because I really believe the enemy has, has it out for this revival calling that's on this state to export a move of God and the good news to the nations of the world. I believe that. That's what I believe. My story, I'm sticking to it. Okay. Next, we have this um, incredible stuff that's parallel in Israel. We know Israel became a nation, but the next thing that we see happening here, and I've got to move quickly, um, when the Yom Kippur War took place, and when Israel was recaptured by Israel, basically, Israel became a nation in 1948. They're in a rough hood. People have, don't want them to be there. Different nations want to push them into the sea, wipe them out, and say they don't have a right to be there. They, have, they shouldn't exist. But every time there's a war and a coalition against Israel, somehow, supernaturally, by no reason on earth that it should ever be possible, Israel somehow wins the war and gets more of their original homeland back. It's crazy. What's, what, there's a parallel between Israel and the church. What's happening in the church at that time? What's happening in the church is the charismatic renewal where many, many Catholics begin to get filled with the Spirit. Every denomination, they begin to get filled with the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit get released. All kinds of stuff's happening all around the world. Mainline churches, evangelical churches, Baptist churches, all of them. Something's happened. There's a fresh stirring. In the late 60s, the Jesus movement starts. I talked to you about California and Azusa Street. Let's talk about the Jesus people because the Jesus people had roots all the way back to Novato, California. Nevada? Where's Novato? It's between San Francisco and the wine country. 
when I'm traveling, I, have to, I tell people I'm, I live near San Francisco. No one knows where San Rafael, Cordovero, Nevada, or Petaluma are, but you just, yeah, you, you guys, Nevada, God knows where it is. I was in a meeting here where um, a friend came down with a team from Bethel, and um, he was saying, does anybody know about the house of Axe and where Lonnie Frisbee lived? I'm like, Frisbee? What Frisbee? Like, did he invent the Frisbee? I'll know about Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie was a young hippie guy that got saved, and he lived here in Novato, and they had the first communal Jesus people house that they could track in the whole country. It was over on Center Road. It was called the House of Acts, and it was on the cover of Time Magazine, and it was used as a symbol to capture how the Jesus people were revving up and starting, and there was this movement of hippie kids coming to Christ, and they were radical, and they were hungry for God, and they really believed the Bible, and it has roots all the way back to Novato, California. That guy, Lonnie Frisbee, is the guy you see in those pictures in Southern California where hundreds and thousands of hippie kids are getting baptized in the Pacific Ocean. That is that move. That's the Jesus people. My parents got saved in the Jesus people movement. Some of you got saved in the Jesus people movement. Many leaders in the body of Christ today that are like, like kind of the elders in the body, they got saved there and they're leading the body today. That's the revival that they experienced. I'm just trying to tell you, not only is California mixed up in this story of God's timeline, Nevada is mixed all up in this story too. It's an incredible thing. The waves are getting, the, the gaps between the waves are getting closer and closer and closer. In the Feast of Tabernacles, it has this amazing, and like I said, there's verses and there's stories and there's scripture for, for each of these parts. We know the Day of Atonement involves becoming like Jesus. It's this character emphasis that God's bringing to the church. Sometimes the character message is not really like that appealing for people. I'm telling you, it's one of the most appealing things to heaven. We're called to be like Jesus, to actually have the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus in our lives, the wholeness of Jesus in our lives, a church that looks like Jesus as he is, so are we in this world, a, a beautiful bride prepared without spot, wrinkle, or any such thing for the bridegroom that's coming. That's the, the Day of Atonement piece. And then... And it's, it's this really upon us. And the tabernacles piece is this. It's going to have seven parts that involve unity, joy, rest, ingathering, glory, like the glory of God released, restoration, and his return. What's incredible is that, you know, I told you Jesus kept these feasts. When, when Jesus went up and there was, it was the triumphant entry, why were there tens of thousands of people there welcoming him with palm branches and laying things down? Why were they in Jerusalem? They were there for Passover. Jesus died on Passover Eve. Where was Jesus, in fact, when they, his parents lost him in the temple? They had gone up to keep the feast of Passover. The whole family, remember? Mary was there too. All of them were there because the kids are grown a little bit and they could make the trip. They went back to Nazareth. They forgot Jesus in the temple. They found him in the temple. There was a temple on that mountain today that has a golden dome on it. That used to be a temple there. And they were there, and he was teaching, and it was this awesome moment. And they realized that their child is exactly who Gabriel said their child was. Later on, in the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is in his 30s. His brothers are going up to keep the feasts. They're going up from Nazareth to keep the feast. I'm like, you coming? He's like, no, I'm not coming at the moment. But he goes up in secret. And then on the last day of the feast, there's this tradition where they pour out all of this water from the pool of Siloam. They pour it out. And on that day, during that time, where that trumpet sounded and they were pouring out that water, Jesus stood up and he cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his belly, as the scriptures have said, shall flow rivers of living water. And he spoke about rivers of living water flowing through believers, flowing through his church. And I believe that wasn't just a moment there in John 7, 38 and 39, but that was a prophetic word for a season that's coming in the Feast of Tabernacles where the glory of God is going to flow through his church like a river to the nations of the world. And we're going to see the greatest harvest of souls the world has ever seen. 
That's what it's prophesying of. That's what tabernacles is. It's a time of harvest. That's what ingathering means. Harvest. Okay. Uh, I'm going to try to wrap this up as quick as I can. So let me just recap some of these applications. Okay, we're on the back cover of your notes. There's the prophetic application. And the prophetic application... We know that, I mentioned already, Jesus observed the feasts, but Jesus fulfills the feasts. Crucified at Passover, buried at unleavened bread, rising again at first fruits, pouring out his spirit at Pentecost, coming again after tabernacles. It's incredible to think about. I'm going to come back to a passage in Matthew 24 to wrap things up in just a moment. Did you know that there are at least 334 messianic prophecies fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus? 334 prophecies sequentially fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus. The chances of that being just 10 of those taking place is 1 in 10 billion. 11 prophecies in a row in the right sequence taking place. One in 100 billion. And there are 334. What I'm trying to tell you is that this is the more sure word of prophecy. It is incredible. His prophetic word is so powerful. You know, Isaiah 53, there's a description of the cross. It's so vivid. By his stripes were healed. All of that. It was so vivid about the crucifixion of Jesus that Jewish people actually thought that Christians wrote that and stuck it in there until, until they found the Dead Sea Scrolls that were dated scientifically decades and hundreds of years before Christians even existed. And they realized the power of prophecy. There's a personal application. I, I spent some time talking about that, but what I want to say is that we have a personal application to receive from each of these feasts. Let that speak to you. Let it speak to your heart. And we're all a part, as the body of Christ, of a seasonal application. What God is doing with Israel and the church, it has a, it often runs parallel. But what I'm trying to point out today is that God is working according to this grid. He's working according to these feasts that we see laid out through Scripture. And if we want to understand our season, we've got to zoom out and see where we are on this timeline. We're in a time of going into the Feast of Tabernacles. Isn't that amazing? We kind of don't even, we haven't even seen the seasonal fulfillment of that yet. We're starting, we're starting to feel it. We're starting to feel unity and joy. We're starting to see harvest. Matthew 24, 14 says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to every nation as a witness, and then the end shall come. Missiologists today, researchers today, people that translate the Bible, Wycliffe translators, um, all those kinds of people, they say that in our generation, in our lifetime, we could see the gospel preached to every language group on the place of planet Earth. And then the end shall come. The end of what? The end of this age and the beginning of a new one. Not, the, not a new age like new age. Like, the, like, the, like the, the reign of Jesus on the earth. Like the return of the Lord. That age. We're living in that time. We are man, the mandate on the church today is to be a part of seeing the greatest harvest of souls in the greatest world population ever known on the planet brought in. The gospel preached. Think about this for a moment. Just think about where we are in history. If the worship team would come, I got excited and went off my notes a bunch of times and now I'm out of time. I want you to think about where we are in history. And what I'm about to say is not a political statement. It's a kingdom statement. It's a prophetic statement. Israel became a nation again in 1948, 71 years ago. This is unbelievably beautiful. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones. God takes him up in the spirit, puts him down in this valley, full of bones, very dry, and asks him a question. Son of man, can these bones live? And he says, O Adonai, you 
No. And God says, prophesy to the bones. And he prophesies, and the bones come together. And then he prophesies to the wind, and breath comes into them. And the fulfillment and the, that is written on Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Israel, and the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., the fulfillment verse is that God will take his people, Israel, regather them, and put them back in their own land as a nation again. And that happened 71 years ago on the heels of 6 million people having their bones very dry, burnt in the ovens of Hitler's Nazi regime. An entire nation born out of that. It's a God thing. It happened in our generation. I mean, I wasn't even born. Some of you were alive in that time before 1948. That was the year before my parents were born. It's incredible, but it's, we can say it's in our lifetime. It's in our generation. We're still living in that prophetic moment, but we're only getting closer to the coming of the Lord. It's an awesome thing to think about. We just need to like get rekindled and, and, and reawakened a little bit to the moment that we're living in. And by the way, if you know me, you know I... I I have a huge heart. In fact, I would love at some point to be able to plant a church in Jordan or Iran or Iraq or in Palestine. Like, I love Arab and Muslim peoples. We, we have a huge heart for, that, for them. And I believe that the blessing God brings on Israel is to extend to blessing those nations too. I, it's not even a political thing to me. I'm just looking at this. When, I, when it comes to the politics of the Middle East, I just look at the Bible. That's it. And that includes the amazing love and blessing God has for all of those nations that are there. Okay. Let's stand up. You guys be, stay with me for a couple more moments here. A couple minutes. I want to read to you from Romans 13. It says, and do this knowing the time. Everybody say knowing the time. Okay, we're, we're getting our bearings, right? We're getting our GPS coordinates for where we are. Knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. Okay, so that's one thing I've got to do. I need to get stirred up and, and I, need, I need to wake up. Now our salvation is nearer than when we believed. Verse 12, I also need to see that the night is far spent, the day is at hand, so to cast off works of darkness. I've got darkness in my life. I've got, I've got stuff going on that shouldn't be going on. It's time to cast that off and instead put on the armor of light. That's what I need to do. And then it says, let us walk properly as in the day, not as revelry and not in revelry, drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, strife and envy. In case you didn't know what darkness was, there it is. It's a list. But Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. It's like when I get a vision of where I am, there's a motivation, there's a discipline. I, no longer am I casting off restraint. I'm embracing my moment. I've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now living with that awareness day to day, boy, that takes discipline, doesn't it? But as we stay connected to the word and connected to what these verses are saying to us, like that's a key, like just realizing, not, not losing sight just of where we are at this moment in time. I want to remind you again, you have come to the kingdom for such a time as if you were born for this moment. It's awesome. Wow. So these verses, they're reminders for us. They're not... This Romans 13 stuff is not here to tell, not to make us feel like, oh man, I'm, I'm out. No. Paul was writing at the people that needed to hear that and step out of that stuff into their moment. It's the same for us. So let's pray today.